Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we venture to Southern Ohio to visit the last remaining washboard maker in the U.S. Its washboards aren't just for laundry, but for music. And people come there to jam. We have people come out of the woodwork to play washboards. We invite some, but the other ones just turn up. We also speak with Elliot Stewart, who makes the zine Porch Beers. The zine tracks his life and travels, like his move from West Virginia and back again. I feel like that wanderlust has always kind of been in me, and uh, one of my ways getting in and out and recording memories is uh, just writing. And we revisit our 20th anniversary celebration with Giles Snyder and Beth Voorhees. They're the founders and original hosts of Inside Appalachia. It was a big fight to get that thing on there. Remember, remember James Muhammad wanted to call it Appalachia coming at ya. <laughs> You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. The Columbus Washboard Company in Logan, Ohio was founded in 1895. Back then, washboards were a necessary tool for doing the laundry each week. Today, of course, most people have a washer and dryer or access to a laundromat. But the Columbus Washboard Company has found a way to stay open. Folkways reporter Capri Cafaro visited the factory and has this story. I'm at the Columbus Washboard Company in downtown Logan, Ohio, surrounded by the Hawking Hills. Today, a group of local musicians are at the factory storefront for a washboard jam session. We have people come out of the woodwork to play washboards. We invite some, but the other ones just turn up. That's Jackie Barnett, a New Zealand native who's lived in the Logan area for over 40 years. Barnett is one of the owners of the Columbus Washboard Company. Below the storefront in the basement is where the washboards are made. In some ways, the factory floor looks more like an antique store filled with old machinery. Barnett shows me the machine that drills holes into the wooden legs of the washboard. The machine is original from the early 1900s. The company was started in 1895 and these machines were introduced in the early 1900s. Next, Barnett takes me to the crimping machine, which manipulates the texture of the metal that will become the body of the washboard. One of the staff feeds a roll of stainless steel into one side of the machine. As the metal works its way through, the smooth sheet becomes crumpled like an accordion. Depending on the machine setting, the metal can also be impressed with a spiral pattern while it's crimped. Barnett shows me some of the variations. This crimp is called our double handy crimp. One side of it is coarse for scrubbing socks and blue jeans, getting grass stains out of them. The other side is soft and rounded for your lingerie. And this was used many, many years ago, and it's still used today. The original purpose of a washboard was, of course, to wash clothing. But over time, the humble washboard has taken on many roles. Some people use washboards as decoration in their homes. And as a matter of fact, I have three Columbus washboards hanging in my own laundry room. Another popular use for the washboard is as an instrument. And it's used in all kinds of music styles including country, jazz, jug band, and even punk. The concept of using a washboard in music is nothing new. Washboard playing traces back to hambone, a style of music with roots in African drum playing. Enslaved people were forbidden to use drums in an attempt to stifle self-expression. So they used clapping, stomping, and household items like the washboard to make the rhythm that would otherwise have been played on a drum. Some handbone musicians even used their body as an instrument, like in this 1980 recording of Donald Crower from North Carolina. If that mockingbird don't sing... Over the years, makers like the Columbus Washboard Company have innovated the design of the washboard to enhance its function as an instrument. As the last remaining washboard maker in the U.S., 
Barnett has incorporated player suggestions into product design. I actually had musicians calling me and one of them suggested, why don't we try stainless steel? At the time, the tin that we were using was very thin and would wear out. And so we also introduced a heavier gauge galvanized metal. Not only do different metals vary in durability, they make different sounds too. Just ask Joe Rose from Chillicothe, Ohio. He's a new washboard player and has been experimenting with the various sounds washboards can make. Rose explains that different crimping patterns create different sound effects. And what you use to strum the washboard with can change that sound too. Usually you need something metal to magnify the sound to it. And depending on the type of metal it's made out of, it's going to make a deeper or you know, more bright sound to it. And there are lots of metal tools to choose from, like thimbles, whisks, banjo picks, and even shotgun shells. Rose picks up a metal whisk to demonstrate. This is the wavy crimp with the whisk. This is the spiral crimp with the whisk. And the glass one with the whisk. Ultimately, the washboard is a percussion instrument. Jackie Barnett says remembering that is the secret to washboard playing. It's just a matter of pretending you've got a drum set in front of you and you just make different no noises and different sounds and just drum to the music. With so many options, some players want customized washboards. Breezy Payton is one of those musicians who has collaborated with the Columbus Washboard Company to make custom instruments. I caught up with Payton by Zoom while she's out on the road touring with Reverend Payton's Big Damn Band. Peyton says she is one of the few full-time professional washboard players in the world. Her passion for playing the washboard comes from her family's Kentucky roots. My granny Fanny, which was my great-grandma, had one on the wall of her uh, house growing up, so I kind of messed around with it a little bit. But I studied just a lot of drumming techniques to learn the washboard, and I listened to a lot of uh, old jug band and blues music that had it. And washboard Sam was one of my favorites. Washboard Sam was an African-American blues musician who was a washboard-playing pioneer. He's such a legend, his washboard is on display at the Smithsonian. Influenced by giants like Washboard Sam, Peyton, who's white, started playing used washboards she'd find at antique stores. Her first was a Columbus washboard. A lot of times these antique ones, I mean, they'd been used to clean clothes and stuff, so they were pretty worn out. Um, so I was wearing through them really quick. And I was like, man, I should really think about just buying new ones. Peyton reached out to Columbus Washboard when she was ready to buy her new ones, in part because using an instrument made in the USA is something she values. It was important to me to play an instrument that was close to home, too. And I couldn't believe that it was just down the street, really. I mean, in Columbus, Ohio, or outside of Columbus, where they made them. Peyton chooses different kinds of washboards depending on the setting. When I'm recording, uh, like in a studio, I generally use a brass washboard, but I use a galvanized or a stainless steel on tour because it gives me a little bit more volume. And the brass is a little bit softer, so it's better in a studio setting. Even though the stainless and galvanized steel washboards are made to be more durable, Peyton still goes through a lot. a new one nearly every day because I wear through them because I play such an aggressive style of washboard. Peyton isn't the only washboard player Columbus Washboard supports. The company strives to make washboard music accessible to all. They helped establish the Washboard Festival in Logan, where people of all ages and experience levels can get on stage and play. The Columbus Washboard Company and the Washboard Festival have managed to capture the spirit of washboard playing, taking an everyday item and incorporating it into an art form. I like the idea of someone, you know, doing this monotonous task of doing their laundry and wanting to entertain themselves and singing along and banging on that washboard as they go along to make, you know, a monotonous task a lot more fun. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Capri Cafaro in Logan, Ohio. That story is part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To see photos from the Columbus Washboard Company, visit our website, wvpublic.org.
Elliot Stewart has been making zines since he was 13. His current ongoing zine, Porch Beers, is an incisive look at Appalachian culture through the eyes of a queer trans man. Porch Beers dives into pop culture fandom, West Virginia food, and his complicated relationship with his hometown of Huntington, West Virginia. I recently spoke with Elliot Stewart about the newest issues of a zine and about what a porch beer is anyway. So I first found porch beers kind of randomly online using a different search engine than I tried before, and I ordered a couple copies on Etsy and was just blown away. Um, I've, I've read zines for a long time, and I've read Appalachian zines, and these just grabbed my attention as a reader. They hooked my interest. The writing is fun and short and funny, but also serious and thoughtful. And the stuff you write about is all stuff that I'm interested in. Or if I'm not immediately interested, the way you write about it like is like a fish hook that grabs my interest. And so tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is this person that makes porch beers? I guess kind of born and bred West Virginian, um, moved a lot around a lot as a kid. Um, we lived with my grandparents who were ministers and uh, moved about every three to four years uh, to different parts of the state. So um, I feel like that wanderlust has always kind of been in me. And uh, one of my ways getting it out and recording memories is uh, – just writing, you know, that's always, uh, my grandma has little booklets I've made when I was like five or six that were kind of maybe my first zines. And it's a good way to be kind of front and center about like a lot of like intersecting identities that I have, um, that I feel a lot of people come up to me and say that I'm like the first person from like X group that they've ever met. And I don't know, that's kind of cool. It has a lot of responsibility to it, but it's kind of cool. And everybody that comes in my house, um, when they see these zines, they always wonder about the name. Tell us about the name Porch Beers. Sure. That was uh, a tradition in Huntington and maybe I'm sure elsewhere, too, like where you have a porch. Um, But Huntington is a small knit community to where everybody knows everybody pretty much. And, you know, you can go by somebody's house, they're on their porch, hey, do you want a porch beer? Yeah, so you sit down, you have a talk, uh, could be about nothing, could be about, like, very important heart-to-heart stuff. Uh, but that's just kind of like a hallmark of Huntington Summers, and I wanted uh, what I did to reflect that. Yeah, and the, the first issue is about fandom, and you have a few different essays about different arenas of fandom, per se. Um, And then the second issue on West Virginia, I found myself taking um, shots of some of the writing about food and sending it to Inside Appalachia's resident foodie, Zach Harold. And he was immediately like, where can I get this? Issue three was about music. And then you came back to food in issues four and 4.5. What pulled you back to food after you had already written about the different kind of foods um, unique to West Virginia? What, What pulled you back for two more issues? When I go to make an issue of Porch Beers, sometimes I will set out and it will be, I want X theme and write around that theme. But more often than not, it's just kind of, I write a couple of articles as to what I feel and a theme loosely takes shape. Um, And that's kind of what was happening with this one to the point where, uh, you know, I had a couple of other like runner-up uh, themes that I was going with, and my partner was like, "You, you might as well write about food because that seems like where this one is drawing you to." And I was, yeah, he's right. You know, that that was what was on my mind. I don't know if there was any particular reason for it, but uh, that's just uh, where the writing led me. So I read through these five issues. They're on specific topics, whether it's pro wrestling or the Ben Folds Five or West Virginia food. But there's there's a larger story arc here, too. I mean, you can – I can read growth in these zines. Um, you moved from Huntington to Chattanooga and back. When you read back these zines, what is the story of Porch Spears to you so far? I do go back and read them at times, and sometimes I do kind of – it is a little painful to read some of the early stuff just because I have changed so much as a person. 
but I'm glad I have a record of it that it, these things happened. And honestly, you know, it's, I think, valuable to get stories of growth out there because not a lot of people record kind of the minutia of life in Appalachia or in like the various kind of sub communities I'm in. The Porch Bears tracks this geographic shift, but it also documents sort of a different kind of transition. Can you share a little bit more about that? I am an out transgender man. Um, I have been out since, in in one form or another, um, as trans since about like 2018, and just slowly began uh, socially transitioning and then medically transitioning. Um, also uh, considered myself queer um, as uh, my my orientation. It's. It's been an interesting experience with that, um, you know, a lot of learning curve. Sometimes people, when they find out, will have like, I like to assume that most people are in good faith when they ask questions, but sometimes they can be very awkward or a little hurtful. Uh, but I try to take it in stride, you know, like like specific medical questions or things like, you know, and if I don't feel comfortable, I'm at least to the point now where I'm like, Hey, that's kind of a weird thing to be asking me. Yo, (laughs) a lot of times I'm the first trans person that someone has knowingly met. Uh, And that is wild to me sometimes. Well, Elliot Stewart, your writing resonates deeply with me and I can't wait to see what you write next. Thank you so much for coming on inside Appalachia. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Huntington writer Elliot Stewart, author of the zine Porch Beers. We'll link to Stewart's Instagram, at porchbeerszine, on our website, wvpublic.org. Later in the show, we meet a guitar repairman who fixes classic old instruments. He spends hours making them like new again. I've definitely honed my skills to, to, you know, to try to be invisible. Yeah, I don't want anybody to know I was ever there. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply. From tattoo parlors to dance studios, art businesses in Letcher County, Kentucky have long been gathering places for creative people. This past July, record flooding hit eastern Kentucky, forcing a lot of these businesses to close. Some have rebuilt, others have relocated, and some are still unsure about what the future holds. Rowan Rattlebush reports. At Busy Bee's Flower Shop and Dance Studio in Fleming Neon, Bonnie Kinser and her husband are still rebuilding. Most of the old movie theater building has been restored, but the roof is still leaking and the contractor's drill continues to whirl. Four months ago, Kinser lost everything here in nine feet of water. It was the most devastating thing that you can even imagine, walking up and seeing the whole front of this building gone. Kinser had just renovated the building last year, and FEMA didn't offer any support. Kinser wasn't sure what she was going to do. She had just a small grant from a local foundation and her community to rely on. My dream has always been to have a school of performing arts for the kids in this area. And I thought it was destroyed. After the flood, crowds came and helped her clear debris and shovel mud. Throughout the rebuilding process, Busy Bees has had a lot of community support. Once we got started back, I knew we couldn't give up because we had too much of an investment here and because I love those kids. A few miles down the road on Main Street in Whitesburg, the Parlor Room Tattoo Parlor might never flip its open sign again. John Haywood, the owner and lead tattoo artist, is also a local painter and musician. He and the shop were a hub of the town's art scene. The sad thing right now is the flood really wiped out what was a major little 
cultural meeting spot. You didn't even have to want to get a tattoo to show up. During our downtime, we played music. Those are the things that are missed. Haywood isn't sure what the future holds for the parlor room. In the meantime, he's been operating from his personal studio in making, while he and the other tattoo artists focus on recovering in their personal lives. It's depressing. What was once a magical sanctuary for me and my family and my friends is just not that anymore. Roundabout Records was another music and art hub, just across the street from the parlor room. Lacey Hale, a local visual artist, owned the store. After the flood, she spent days trudging through the thick mud left behind by two feet of flood water. The night before the flood, I just finished hand printing 215 cards. Those cards were scattered just throughout the store, just drowned in that mud. The shop reopened months later at a new location two blocks up the street and out of the floodplain. It's been renamed Sisyphus Records. Hale says the decision to keep the shop open gets to the heart of why she makes art. There was just so much destruction and, and sadness and trauma. It was hard to see beauty in a lot of things for a little bit. Since that happened, it's been healing for me to make pieces about the flood. But it was just very hard to see where art fit in after such a traumatic event. The artistic community in Letcher County has long held each other up. For Haywood, a friend used to let him pay rent with paintings. For Hale, her community had helped her pay for art school. She says community support is still vital and made it possible for her to stay in Whitesburg. People were coming in off the street. People I didn't know were willing to get dirty, covered in mud, scratched up, <laughs> had to go get tetanus shots, you know, just because they wanted to help. All the days I was in tears because it was just hard to understand how people could be so kind and generous and not even know us. As these centers of the art community in Letcher County slowly rebuild, people are supporting each other and creating beauty again. Back in Fleming Neon, this generosity has made it possible for Kinser and her husband to bring busy bees back to life. God's given us back better than what we had before the flood. All things new. All things new. For WMMT, I'm Rowan Roudebush in Letcher County, Kentucky. Our next story takes us to Demick, Pennsylvania. For years, a natural gas company's denied charges that it was polluting people's drinking water. Well, now the company has changed course and agreed not to contest the criminal charges. The Allegheny Front's Kara Holsoppel has more. The 2010 documentary Gasland made the small town of Dimmick the face of the anti-fracking movement. The Oscar-nominated movie documents water contamination at homes there near the drilling operations of Cabot Oil and Gas. Susan Phillips with State Impact Pennsylvania has covered the story for years. She says it all started in 2009 when one resident's shed blew up. What had happened was methane had migrated into the private water wells of the residents in that area. And it's important to remind folks that a lot of people in rural Pennsylvania have private water wells. They're not hooked up to a public water supply. These folks had to use what they called water buffaloes. They couldn't use their tap water for drinking, and they were afraid to use it for showers and bathing as well. Methane itself is not toxic if you drink it out of the water. The problem is that if it's in a high enough concentration in an enclosed space, like any spark can make it explode. So there was a lot of points where, at the time, Cabot Oil and Gas, it's now called Coterra Energy, paid for the water, and then they stopped paying for the water. So that made people's houses worthless if they didn't have water. Charges against Cabot, now Katera, were announced in 2020 by Attorney General Josh Shapiro, now Governor-elect Shapiro, after a grand jury report. What is the company admitting to? So the charges were related to the poor well construction and the gas migration and the company's failure to fix it. Remember, up until very recently, the company, Cabot, like you said, is now Coterra Energy, refused to admit that their actions polluted the water endemic. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to plead no contest, but basically it means you're not admitting guilt, but you're also not challenging the charges. These charges are all primarily under the state's clean streams law. The deal that was worked out by the attorney general was that Cabot would pay more than $16 million to help fund a public drinking water supply that has to be built in Dimmick. 
if they had actually gone to trial, the largest fine that the company would have paid was about $600,000, which is nothing. $600,000 is pocket change for a company that's worth about $21 billion. Have you learned anything from following this case, like as a reporter? I mean, look, the laws on the books were minimal then, they're minimal now. I mean, in terms of fines, it's a lot cheaper for companies to pay a fine than to drill correctly. And I hope that Pennsylvania's politicians and the regulators are going to be more cautious the next time an unfamiliar industry comes into the state and starts drilling everywhere or or doing whatever they are doing that's new and, and tries to like assess what's happening ahead of time instead of after the fact. I think that was the big problem here. It was like drill, baby drill, and there didn't seem to be a lot of oversight. There didn't seem to be a lot of knowledge on the company's part in terms of the geology of Pennsylvania and just how, you know, different it is from a place like Oklahoma or Texas. Susan Phillips is a reporter with State Impact Pennsylvania and WHYY. There's more at AlleghenyFront.org. That's the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holsapple. Luthier Bob Smacula of Elkins, West Virginia, has made a career out of fixing old musical instruments so modern musicians can keep playing them. Bokeways reporter Zach Harold visited Smacula Shop to see how it's done. Hey there. All right. Welcome to the chaos. I love it. <laughs> Walk through the front door of Bob Smacula's workshop, and honestly, it's a lot to take in. Every flat surface is covered in stuff. Chisels, screwdrivers, paintbrushes, a random fork, a bottle of lighter fluid. One whole wall is just wood clamps of various shapes and sizes. But eventually you're able to look past the jumble and you begin to notice all the musical instruments in various states of repair. Like this ukulele on Bob's workbench. It's a Martin made in the 1920s, a beautiful instrument and a real collector's piece. But it has problems. For some reason, Martin used mahogany for the tuning pegs, so they're fussy, or extra fussy. These tuners are held in place by friction, like the ones on a violin. Now that friction has caused one of the brittle mahogany pegs to break. I'm going to replace those with uh, a comparable ebony tuning peg, and that's going to work better for him. He's going to be able to get things in tune uh, a bit better. And that is Bob's style. He could have slapped a set of modern metal geared tuners on this ukulele, and it would have stayed in perfect tune. But it wouldn't have been right for a hundred-year-old instrument like this. So he tries to make repairs that both fix an instrument's problems while also staying true to its history. I've definitely honed my skills to, to, you know, to try to be invisible. Yeah, I don't want anybody to know I was ever there except to go, hey, this plays better than, than they usually do, or this sounds better than they usually do. Bob has been honing those invisibility powers for a long time. He's originally from Cleveland, Ohio, where his parents were involved in the folk music scene of the 1960s and 70s. In those days, new acoustic instruments were not very good. They were overbuilt and heavy. So folk musicians tended to seek out older instruments but those often needed repairs. So Bob's dad, Peter, an engineer by trade, started fixing them. Bob also took an interest in the mechanical side of musical instruments. He had learned how to play his mother's lap dulcimer and wanted one of his own, but he didn't have the money. So he sent away for a build-your-own dulcimer kit. My parents' friends uh, saw the instrument and said, hey, uh, you made that. Could you make me one? And the next thing I knew, I was, you know, 14 and in business, making dulcimers for people. Bob and his dad, Peter, eventually joined forces and opened Goose Acres Folk Music Center in Cleveland. They became well-known for buying, selling, building, and repairing folk instruments. But instrument repair was a difficult trade to learn in those days. 
Oh, we were de- we were definitely inventing the wheel. The the uh, the information uh, age of instrument work just wasn't there. There were a few books out there, and and so I'd grab everything I could in printed sources. But it's not like now where you can find dang near anything you need to know via the internet. Bob learned much of what he knows from the instruments that appeared on his operating table. You know, maybe some a part needed to be replaced. We'd study that and put on something similar. Every builder has their own little quirks or their own little design style. He became so good and his work developed such a reputation that Bob decided to leave Cleveland and the business he started with his dad. He would follow his new bride, Mary. She worked for the U.S. Forest Service in Elkins and moved his operations to West Virginia. Then I decided I can do my work anywhere in the world. It didn't have to be in Cleveland. Anywhere a UPS truck can come, I can, I can uh, fix an instrument and send it back to the owner. Turns out he was right. And in addition to his repair work, Bob also taught instrument repair classes at the nearby Augusta Heritage Center. That's how he found his apprentices, Nate Druckenmiller and Andy Fitzgibbon. Now customers from all over the country ship their banjos, fiddles, mandolins, and guitars to this little shop in the woods, where Bob, Andy, and Nate get them singing again. Like this banjo from 1887. You know, made by a a talented woodworker who maybe banjos wasn't his his main thing, but uh, it's, it's really interesting, really. This instrument is on Andy's bench. He's worked for Bob for over 20 years, and he's the shop's banjo guy. So you see a lot of unique, one-off, home-built ones like this, uh, you know, very, very in quality, anywhere from really crude to really nice. And this one is a really nice one. And you can see, you know, you can look at it and see somebody played it a lot to where it put all this wear in it. So it has a lot of... Uh, a lot of history that way, too, and it is fun to be able to get them back up and running again. But as nice as it is, there are some things about this old banjo that just don't live up to modern standards. The frets, for instance. Builders nowadays know that frets need to be precisely placed, like down to hundredths of an inch, for an instrument to play in tune. The frets on this 1887 banjo weren't placed with nearly that kind of precision. Now, since this banjo is more of a collector's piece, Andy's going to keep that wonky fret job. At this point, you kind of have to balance playability with, with the historical aspect of it. But the balance might tip in the other direction if, say, that instrument was going to be played on stage, or if the original construction method had somehow compromised the banjo's structural integrity. In those cases, Andy might have to apply just a bit more modern know-how, like he did with Bob's own 1903 Fairbanks banjo. Bob's uncle got it in a bar in Newton Center, Massachusetts. He goes in one day and he sees this banjo in the corner. He said, hey, Tom, what's with the banjo? And Tom says, ah, somebody used it to pay a bar tab. You want it? You can have it. So it had a lot of sentimental value, but it wasn't a great player. You know, all the time that I've had it, I always thought, it just there's something missing. There's something that needs to be, you know, done to make this, the, you know, the, the best playing banjo for me. It turns out the fingerboard was made from ebonized hardwood. That's a technique where woodworkers imitate the look of ebony by creating a chemical reaction in the wood's natural acids. And the acid dyes that they used 120 years ago uh, causes slow degradation to the wood cell structure. And without it being a good solid piece of wood, well, it would just you know, bend ever so slightly and, and make it harder to play. After years of working on instruments just like this, Bob and Andy decided to rip out the old fingerboard and replace it with real ebony. They replaced the wood on the peghead with a special kind of poplar. It matches the color of old ebonized wood, but it's more stable. And this banjo went from, from uh, you know, one of my favorite, you know, or my favorite family heirloom to my favorite banjo to play. But I like it for the little bit of finger style banjo playing I do too. 
Bob had been playing this banjo for nearly 40 years before making that repair. So why the delay? Well, the instrument really belonged to his dad. It didn't pass into Bob's possession until Peter's death in 2008. But really, that worked out perfectly. By the time it was actually his, Bob had all those years of experience and knew exactly how to fix it. He doesn't make his customers wait quite that long for repairs, of course. Some take only hours. A severe case might take six months. You've just got to find a place on his very long wait list. That's why when I was saying my goodbyes to everybody at the shop, that Bob made a request. When you're airing this, you know, I want to make sure you, you don't, like, give away or tell anybody my exact location, but say, you know, north of Elkins. I said I noticed he only had a P.O. box on his website. Was he worried someone would break in and make off with somebody's vintage guitar? No. It turns out Bob is worried about something far more precious. You see how busy we are. If I did have my address, people would just stop by. Oh, just wanted to see what you have. It's like, uh, you have no time. <laughs> you know, I've got no... Yeah, I've got... Uh, Bob has worked for a long time to be invisible. Let's not ruin that for him. From an undisclosed location somewhere north of Elkins, West Virginia, I'm Zach Harold for Inside Appalachia. It's hard to believe, but Inside Appalachia has been on the air for 20 years. A lot has changed in that time. The internet was there when it was first founded, but social media didn't exist. We didn't even have MySpace yet. Podcasts hadn't taken off either. But radio was still around, so in the summer of 2002, West Virginia Public Broadcasting launched a new public affairs show called Inside Appalachia, with Giles Snyder and Beth Voorhees as hosts. And here we are today. Inside Appalachia's 20th anniversary arrived in August. I reached out to Giles and Beth to hear about what things were like when they first started the show. So, Giles Snyder and Beth Voorhees, thank you for coming on Inside Appalachia. Thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah, glad to be here. Our, our listeners with West Virginia Public Broadcasting will know you all as broadcast legends, but uh, you're still going to be new to, to some of our listeners, especially in other states. Would you all mind uh, just to say who you are and introduce yourself? Uh, Beth, you go first. Uh, <laughs> my name is Beth Voorhees. Uh, I had the pleasure of co-hosting Inside Appalachia with Giles Snyder. I worked for West Virginia Public Broadcasting for some 30-odd years. I retired about five years ago. And it's still gratifying that when people hear my voice or hear my name, they always say, oh, we miss you on the radio. <laughs> it's always nice to hear. <laughs> uh, I'm Giles Snyder, of course, and uh, I worked at West Virginia Public uh, Broadcasting for something like 16 years. And uh, I've been at NPR as a newscaster for something on the order of 18 years now doing, uh, doing newscasts. So my biography in a nutshell. So we're here to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Inside Appalachia, which would not exist were it not for y'all. So paint me a picture of summer 2002. You know, where were you in your careers? I'm just kind of interested in your personal perspectives on, on how this show came together. Well, Giles created it. I was just the sidekick. <laughs> You're more than a sidekick, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess what I was thinking at the time was... That uh, the uh, if you look at the uh, map and uh, the transmitter placements that West Virginia Public Radio has, Parkersburg, uh, Huntington, Morgantown, Martinsburg. There's a, a lot of the transmitters are in uh, very close to the state border. So I, I, I kind of figured that we had a pretty large audience outside the state as well. And I, I thought a uh, a news magazine that would appeal to the region uh, as opposed to just West Virginia, uh, would be a good thing to do. Of course, our news department, of course, is hyper-focused on West Virginia and always has been and, and always should be. But I thought that a, a regional news magazine would make sense for West Virginia public broadcasting and, and maybe try to get other stations there as well. 
when I got into journalism, it was the year before Inside Appalachia launched. And I got into it with the intention of like doing regional coverage. I interned at a Western news magazine called High Country News that kind of took a similar approach. And I wanted to bring that approach back to Appalachia, which is where I grew up. But you all were the innovators here. Tell me more about that regional approach. How did you think through shows? How did you think through what this show was going to be? Tell me about like shaping this show and like how, what framed your perspective? I think it was, uh, I think it was a more of a, uh, at the t- more of a by the seat of your pants kind of operation <laughs> uh, and bare bones operation it was uh more about getting on the phone and uh calling the you know other stations around the region seeing what they were covering uh looking at uh what we had covered over the past week and seeing if that could be adapted uh make sense to air it on on a weekend show like inside appalachia and putting together on a friday afternoon giles you remember the executive director of public broadcasting at the time said okay you can do it but it can't cost any money Correct. Correct. <laughs> we we had we had a time getting approval for uh, to, to 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 do inside Appalachia from the uh, uh, the higher up muckety mucks. But you're right. I forgot about that, Beth. She, yeah. She did say it. Yeah. She did say it can't cost any it's money. Any money. And so we couldn't pay our stringers. We couldn't pay our reporters. They just did it because they were satisfied with what they were doing and wanted it to be heard by a larger audience. And they just kind of volunteered. So after you got the show off the ground, how did it develop over those early years? I'm going to let Beth answer that. Uh, I, I left in 2003. So I was only really on the air with Inside Appalachia, maybe a year, year and a half. Okay, yeah. Once uh, Giles went over and found fame at NPR at the Mothership in Washington, I tried a couple of co-hosts, but nothing really gelled. It wasn't really like Giles and I. So I just put together the show myself. I hosted it and edited it and kept in contact with our reporters, with our stations, did interviews, particularly for Inside Appalachia and just kind of kept it together. I always found editing the show, while it was long work, I always found it very satisfying because once it was done, you had a product that was really good. It really was regional. It had a lot of different stories. It had drama, it had humor, it had great music. I was introduced to some great Appalachian music when I was producing the show that I didn't know about. I think one of the key players um, in Inside Appalachia, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, Beth, was Scott Finn. Uh, I remember after I left, he called me. It, it had been a few years, and he called me up, was asking me questions, and had mentioned that he was bringing in a uh, a show doctor yeah. uh, to come in to help help shape the show and figure out where to go, where to take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. The show found some support under Scott. Yeah, I um, I stopped doing Inside Appalachia when I was still there. It was taken over by Roxy Todd and Jessica Lilly. I think when I moved from being news director to the executive producer of the West Virginia channel, which had gone on the air in 2017, something like that, I had to drop Inside Appalachia. So, and Cecilia, Cecilia Mason had it for a little while, and then it was turned over to Roxy Todd and Jessica Lilly. Where do you think about where the show's gone? I mean, it's been 20 years and Appalachia's changed a lot and so is so is media. So we as individuals, clearly too. What are you some of your thoughts on what's happened since you all launched it and where the show is today versus where it was when it was an idea? Well, I think it's a better show today than it was when it was uh, in its infancy. Uh, I'm proud of it. I'm you know as a as a listener, so a fine ambassador of, of the uh, you know of the state and uh, and the region. I, I, I think it's changed a lot since we started it back in uh, the early 2000s. Uh, it's more focused more on cultural issues and 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 I don't, I don't know. It's just it's, it's it's a better show than it was then. So kudos to you. Tell me some dirt. <laughs> I'll tell you some dirt. You want to hear some dirt? Yeah, I can. Tell I'll tell you, you some dirt. dirt. I've been holding back on Giles on this for years. Okay. So it's Friday morning. I come into the office. We always uh, record the introductions for Inside Appalachia. And this one Friday morning, Giles said, oh, I've already recorded the show. 
And I said, you recorded the show? Yeah, I, I recorded the show. And I had to figure, Giles, that's what you sent in for your audition for NPR, and you didn't want them to hear me. <laughs> right? I, right. I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you could have told me. Because it was um, a real battle. It was, it was a big fight to get that thing on the air. Remember, remember James <laughs> Muhammad wanted to call it Appalachia coming at you. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, that's not yeah. public radio now. Giles Snyder and Beth Voorhees, thank you so much. You all are both legends and role models for me um, long before I came across Inside Appalachia, just through um, through my media consumption, but also um, my friends who worked at West Virginia Public Broadcasting spoke so highly of you both. So when I found out that you all were the inaugural host of Inside Appalachia, I was like, of course they were. Of course they made this show that's so awesome and fantastic. So thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be so here. Much for a lot of people use downtime in the last week of December to plan out the next year. They make resolutions to quit smoking, read more books, or plant a garden. Producer Bill Lynch has designed a lot of well-intentioned New Year's resolutions and plans. A few of them he's made professionally, like for his weekly one-month-at-a-time column for the Charleston Gazette Mail, which ran from 2016 to 2022. For 2023, he's taking on something new that picks up one of his familiar themes. Bill doesn't know something, but he thinks he should. He can explain. It's been said that every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Well, this is actually a line from a rock song, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. Seven years ago, I was at a particularly low point in my life. It was just before Christmas, and I was worn out. At the time, I was a writer for the Charleston Gazette Mail, overworked, stressed out, and suffering from the pains of a middle-aged broken heart. I got dumped right before Thanksgiving and wasn't nearly over it. To get through the holidays, I was self-medicating at night with half gallons of Turkey Hill peanut butter and chocolate ice cream and 10 seasons of The Office on Netflix. I was a mess. What I needed showed up as a random email from an animal rights group I'd never heard of. The group challenged me to give up meat and all animal products for the month of January. Go vegan. They wanted me to write about it for the newspaper. Who knows? Maybe I'd even like it. The exact words that came out of my mouth were, No, you silly hippies, I will not give up bacon. I said this at a computer screen which was silly enough to make me stop. I wondered, what did I really know about vegans? Not much. Just what I saw on TV or in movies. None of that was flattering. Vegans got played for laughs. They were scolds and hypocrites. But did that feel like the actual truth? No, not really. So I asked an editor to let me write about taking the vegan lifestyle for a spin. This was winter, the holidays, and things were a little slow at the paper. To keep it interesting, I said I could give up meat for a year, and then because I didn't think anyone would care that much about what I was eating or not eating, I convinced her that I should take on other projects too. Do one new thing a month, every month, for a year. The only real rules were that each month had to be different than the last, and it had to be something I didn't know much about but sort of had an interest in. Almost anything was fair game. One month turned into 12 and then into six years of trying new things and always learning. Along the way, I learned to bake pies and roll sushi. It's not as hard as you think. I tried stand-up comedy in front of a paying crowd. I danced in the Nutcracker. I got behind the controls of a small plane and killed no one. I volunteered to read to kids, walk dogs, and help feed the hungry. Lots of things pushed me way, way, way outside of my comfort zone. And not everything worked. I fell down, failed, and made a fool of myself more times than I can count. But I always learned something. I learned a lot, honestly, and I had an amazing time. I left the newspaper last year and came to Inside Appalachia. I said goodbye to the column. I'd had a pretty good run, I thought. I could move on. But the more I listened to the stories we told on the show, the more I began to think that I might have my own small part to play here. You see, I've lived in Appalachia nearly all of my life, but it's been fairly sheltered. My experiences have followed a very narrow sort of path. I don't hunt, I don't fish, I don't ride ATVs, and I have never handled a snake in church, or really anywhere else that I can think of. I can't clog, can't make biscuits worth eating, and I don't even know all the words to country roads. Over the next year, I'm going to try and change some of that. I'm embarking on a series for West Virginia Public Broadcasting and Inside Appalachia. We're calling it lore, which is defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as something that is learned, traditional knowledge or belief, tribal lore, knowledge gained through study or experience. 
I've got a list of topics to work through, things I want to learn about or learn how to do. I'll be blogging about my progress on our website, wvpublic.org, and I'll show up on Inside Appalachia every now and again to give an update or share a story. I hope this will be fun, but if nothing else, it should keep me out of trouble for a little while. Follow Bill's adventures at the Lore Blog at wvpublic.org. When I get my money From everyone at Inside Appalachia, Happy New Year, and thanks for following us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Aaron Copeland, Johnny Stats, Delmore Brothers, and Reverend Peyton's Big Damn Band. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.